0: Welcome to, well, truly not exactly sure what week we are on for the Periscope Edge podcast. Uh, my name is Carter Jensen. We're coming to you from actually Minneapolis, Minnesota, deep inside the depths of Periscope advertising located on Washington Avenue here um, in the beautiful downtown. Uh, Usually, Paul Crary takes on uh, the Edge podcast, but truthfully, Paul has left us for bigger and better adventures, as we talked a little bit about last year, or last year, last week. Um, Basically, he's taken off to LA to take on some really cool things, and he doesn't necessarily know what's in the future, but I think um, he will be well on his way. Uh, Today, I'm joined with Joe Felipez. He took on this really incredible topic last week at what we call Public House. And quickly, before we dive in, Public House is an all-agency meeting that we've been holding every two weeks. And what we focus on are the new and emerging topics that are shaping the work that we're doing every day. Now, what's interesting is, is that, you know, that's kind of the job that we do here at Periscope is try to instill, you know, all the work that we do with these new and emerging topics. And for the first couple of months, we thought the best way to do that was to create decks and maybe write some articles and maybe have some conversation, which are all great and grand for certain situations. But we found out that one of the most compelling ways to get some of these topics kind of interjected or injected into the work that we do and to truly kind of inspire the greater greater agency is through these public house sessions. 20 minutes in front of the entire agency, 9 a.m., amplified sound, big presentations. It's a lot of fun. So Joe, who's hanging out with me here today, actually took on uh, this last one where at first, I will say, Joe, I was a little skeptical on what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the title that you continue to go with is called Outthinking Yourself. And when you try to describe it the first time, Paul and I both looked at each other a little oddly. But then the first time we had you run through it, the energy that you put into it and the topic was so compelling. And what was really nice, too, is that we often get stuck in this category of technology. And now we're not doing that anymore. We're able to kind of jump out of that thanks to the topic that you brought up. So outthinking yourself, you went from a murder to sports, so it's a psychology, and then back to the murder. Give us a little example or give us a little summary of what you talked about on Tuesday. <laughs> well,
1: I'm glad I got you guys to come around because it was a lot of fun to put together this presentation. But uh, the basis of what I talked about uh, yesterday at Public House was this idea of behavioral economics. And that's a field of study that gets into the processes by which people Uh, make decisions and a lot of the mental shortcuts they might utilize whether or not they are conscious or not uh, to make a decision more quickly so uh, just as a passion outside of the day-to-day work. I've been a fan of the books of Michael Lewis for a while. I'm sure people will recognize his name is attached to the the book and the movies, uh, Moneyball and the Big Short, both of which are about small groups of people who are able to see through the noise and see true value that may not be otherwise uh, obviously apparent. And he published a book not too long ago called The Undoing Project, which is about these two Israeli psychologists who started the field of study behavioral economics and their entire field of study. Uh, was based around trying to figure out what sort of mental shortcuts people do make when they make decisions. So why do people make errors
0: in judgment? So to start this off, well, I want to talk about the murder that mm-hmm. you started this whole thing off with, which I think for many people was their favorite part of how you put this <laughs> presentation together. Um, but you ran people through a couple of key questions. And I think, you know, the murder was the first one. And maybe you want to actually describe that. But you talk about these shortcuts that we often take when making decisions, especially when we make decisions rapidly. Um, how did you tie this kind of horrific story uh, back to what you just described
1: so uh also being a, a fan of podcasts, I listened to uh to serial as many people did a couple years ago uh with the uh which was about the murder of uh H- haley min actually let's let 's edit that out i don 't remember her name.
0: Yeah oh, no, oh I think that was I think that was accurate. Um, no, I think we all know Serial. We all know the gist of it. Um, Adnan Syed, right? Correct. Did I get the name right? Yep. Um, but yeah, so Serial was a huge, huge, huge kind of mystery um, kind of it was a story, I guess the best way to put it. Right. Um, narrated and told by Sarah Kating, she was one of the. Or Serial, I would argue, was one of the shows that got podcasting back on the map. But anyways, absolutely continue. yeah.
1: So uh, being just a fan of that podcast and listening. To and reading some articles about how they went about actually producing it. Uh, the producers reference this documentary series that uh, first appeared, I think, in like 2005 called The Staircase, which was uh, produced for Sundance Television, if I remember correctly. And it's around another true crime mystery, uh, and it details the murder of Kathleen Peterson, the wife of Michael Peterson, a novelist, and the peculiar circumstances around her death. So uh, to help illustrate some of the ideas of these mental shortcuts and the errors in judgment that we can make, I presented the case overall as it's presented within the series and talk about the case that the uh, the state of North North Carolina brought against Michael Peterson, uh, alleging that he murdered uh, his wife in cold blood. So after going through some of these uh, mental shortcuts and describing how we might uh, make errors in judgment based on different details that we hear and think uh, zeroing in on uh, uh, particular details that may not be particularly relevant. I went back through and said, okay, now here's all the details of this case at the end of the presentation, and let's strip away things that may not be necessary at all. And uh, the I won't ruin it all, but I'm sure if you're familiar with the staircase, or a quick Google search will reveal an actually pretty compelling and not particularly obvious. Uh, solution of what might have actually happened to Kathleen
0: Peterson. Completely. And we'll actually link to the documentary series that was really cool. Joe, actually, I was joking with him earlier today, owns the VHS series of this entire thing. But it's interesting, when he was putting down, you know, at the, at the early part of the presentation, he kind of outlined this murder case. And it was one that I was somewhat familiar with. I'd seen on a couple TV shows. Um, but, you know, he talks about all these, de- you know, all these things that we as humans naturally glob onto. The idea, you know, it was a second marriage. There were some coincidental facts that kind of you know, led to us to believe that he was the one who did it. Um, and I think the majority of the group that was listening to Joe yesterday, and um, we'll actually embed the video of his presentation into the post here. Um, but the early part of the presentation, we were all pretty much convinced that we knew what happened, but right. we were proven wrong. So, <laughs> um, so you talk about Michael Lewis, Moneyball. How do you tie that to sports? And can you give in a couple examples of uh, how you use that in the presentation yesterday? Someone
1: that has seen the movie Moneyball might remember a really nice sequence where uh, a composite character is explaining to uh, general manager Billy Bean of the Oakland A's, played by Brad Pitt, on this idea of finding value for baseball players. And within the world of baseball, scouts would evaluate, uh, for example, pitchers. They'd evaluate them on how fast they could throw the ball or uh, what their earned run average is. And the idea behind Moneyball that uh, the Oakland A's sort of championed initially within the world of baseball, along with a couple of other uh, smaller teams, is they looked through at all the statistics available and tried to figure out what is the true value of an actual player outside of what this conventional wisdom would tell us. So i within the film, there's this really nice sequence talking about the pitcher, uh, Chad Bradford, who had a very unconventional style of throwing the ball. He threw uh, a, a more or less underhand, a submarine-style pitch. And he didn't throw particularly fast either. I think this fastest uh, uh, ball that he could throw was maybe about 85 miles an hour. So uh, the, this unconventional style of throwing underhand, a submarine, sub, uh, this unconventional style of throwing the ball sort of underhand uh, called submarine style pitch. And he didn't throw particularly fast either. I think at the height of his career, the fastest he was throwing the ball was maybe about 85 miles an hour. So conventional wisdom, these baseball scouts would say this guy doesn't have a whole lot of value or impact. He's not really, he doesn't fit the classical mold of what a pitcher is. So he's not worth having as a part of the team. But by taking a look at the actual statistics behind his performance in the minor leagues and in college, What the Oakland A's saw is a pitcher who had one of the best ratios of strikeouts to walks in all of baseball, and then he gave up very few home runs. And so looking through those statistics that maybe weren't the obvious conventional wisdom, they saw one of the most effective pitchers in all of baseball, and because no one else saw value for them, they were able to acquire them for, I think, less than $300,000 for that first season. Well, and this is
0: how some of the teams, you know, specifically, you know, it's the A's, right, Oakland, Mm -hmm. right? They were able to become a very successful baseball team without having the huge salary caps like some of the big East Coast teams had, right? So they were able to look at something that was different beyond the stereotypical statistics to be able to find value in players that didn't cost – the cost of the standard All-Stars.
1: Exactly. So that's what got uh, Michael Lewis interested in the Oakland A's. Uh, uh, specifically at the end of the 2001 season, he took a look and saw that on a $33 million budget, the Oakland A's won 102 games out of a 162-game season, whereas the New York Yankees, uh, with $120 million payroll, uh, only won 95 games. So he said, why is it that in the world of baseball, why is this team able to win more games when they are being outspent 4-1? to one? Because Logically, if you think through that or don't think about it too hard, you would say a team spending a lot more money on these star players should be winning a lot more games and be a lot more
0: dominant completely. No, and what's really interesting, Joe, is like that one segment of the conversation was incredibly, uh, I would say, not immersive, but really kind of engaging to the audience, because I think it was something that they were able to understand thanks to the metaphors that you gave. Um, And I think what was really cool is that that was not where you stopped. You went into two or three or four other categories that were very similar to this Moneyball concept in ways that we sometimes jump to conclusions based on preconceived notions or how quickly we kind of dive into some of these issues um I wish we'd have time to go through all of them, but we'll go ahead and actually link to some of the information in um, in the show notes that we put here on the podcast. Um, but it was interesting, and, and I talked and I will readily admit, and I readily admitted to Joe as well, that we were a little skeptical, right? This isn't the standard technology presentation. And even through the presentation, I think everyone was looking yesterday at saying, how is Joe going to tie this back to the work that we do at our advertising agency day to day? Because that's one of the things, that's one of the prereqs we have when we're you know giving these presentations is saying, hey, we're not only going to tell you." a bunch of information, but we're going to show you the way that this is going to positively affect the work you do day to day with your clients. Now you had a few points at the very end and you were able to tie every single one of the topics that you had, uh, back to, um, the work that we're doing within an agency. Um, but you had one really specific one that you said, if you don't take anything else away, remember this one point, what was that one point? So,
1: uh, at the halfway point of the of the conversation yesterday, I went into some of those specific mental shortcuts that were outlined by Dversky and Kahneman. And uh, one in particular, and these shortcuts, by the way, they refer to as heuristics. And this one heuristic that I thought was especially valuable uh, for thinking through not only just the work that we do with our clients, but specifically with our own internal work that we do uh, when we're working through like maybe a project and evaluating different campaigns or different taglines is this idea of the gambler's fallacy. And what the gambler fallacy states is that the order in which you review a piece of information or make decisions might affect what decision and outcome you ultimately reach. So uh, there was a very uh, interesting episode of the Freakonomics podcast, maybe about five months ago, where they talked through baseball umpires and how when they need to call either a ball or strike very close to the edge of the strike zone, that if they were to call uh, a ball the first time around, if they saw a very similar pitch that the batter didn't swing at the. The subsequent time, they'd be a third more likely to call it a strike just because of this mental desire for us to create balance within systems that we see. So, if we are another example I use within the podcast is talking through these loan officers in India who, uh, in this test, went through and reevaluated loan applications. And what they saw is that if they were to uh, accept a loan application, if they didn't think too much into the next one that they reviewed, they were perhaps 8% more likely to deny that just because of this overall desire to uh, to balance that system out. So I thought the gambler's fallacy in particular was very important for us to take away just thinking through in context of the order in which that we're reviewing work or making decisions uh, can influence how we... Uh, how we evaluate and how we reach a decision on that subsequent thing.
0: Because we've all been, sorry to interrupt you, but we've all been in the case where we think we have something really great and we put it up against, you know, everyone else's and it gets reviewed by a superior of ours or a client or whatever that might be Mm -hmm. and it gets completely trashed and it it seems to be quite unfair and and you're saying basically that could be the result of what the gambler's fallacy brings up is that truthfully the decision that that person made, or I mean, it could just be crap work too, but I mean, (laughs) but the idea is that the, the order in which people are reviewing work could potentially have a huge outcome on what they, on what they kind of choose to do with that next choice, right? Yeah. So, and this actually combines with another heuristic
1: called anchoring, which is the first piece of information that you see might influence how you frame everything else. So, Completely. within our uh, some short conversations we had after uh, the public house session ended yesterday, uh, one of our creative directors came up to me and said, you know. I think about that a lot, that oftentimes when we're presenting campaign directions to clients, we might lead with one we think is okay but not the best one and hope that the the second or the third that we think is really good is really gonna hit. So in terms of the gambler's fallacy, that might be true, but if we're starting off with something that the client may doesn't not love, and, and yeah. might like, it may frame everything in the you know, in a in a poorer frame, uh, in a poorer light. So maybe it's in our best interest overall to lead with a thing that we
0: think is the best. Totally. No, Joe, I think that's awesome. And I think we just touched on the tip of the iceberg of what you're able to cover in the public house, 20 minutes, you know, as as we do here on the podcast, we try to keep these short. And of course, you have me interjecting with these, you know, horrible framed questions <laughs> uh, <laughs> try, trying to, to lead you down the path. But um, we're going to include a ton of show notes in this one because I think the work that Joe has done over the last... Couple of years you've been kind of in on this on um, these concepts, um, was absolutely incredible and hit really hard. I think with the you know 100 plus people that showed up to his presentation yesterday, which are really exciting. So, thank you, Joe, for being here. Um, we're excited to have you on again because the uh, little bit I know, uh, Joe was a, a theater uh, person through <laughs> high school, right, that's and correct. part of the yep. speech team. Yep. And, it, and it goes and it shows, which just really cool. <laughs> so, um, that's the edge podcast here for this week. As we consistently mention, uh, the views that we talk about here on our own, they're just me and Joe hanging out. Um, and we do our best to to uh, speak truth, but um, we keep these views kind of independent, and they are our own um, ideas. So uh, we'll be back next week. We publish these each Wednesday, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, Carter.